together to the book of Genesis. Specifically, we will be looking this morning at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. As we continue in our study of the Word of God and the first things of Genesis, the book of beginnings. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of God is holy. The Word of God is true. The Word of God is sufficient. And the Word of God is authoritative. That is especially helpful to remember this morning as we look at this text. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight for the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use this word right now for us this morning. That you would remind us, O Lord, that you are indeed sovereign, that your word is true, and that you care for your people. Help us, O Lord. Help us to serve you. Help us to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us in a deeper and more meaningful way. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it seems that every week, from week to week, we take some grand doctrine and look at it in Genesis. And that shouldn't surprise us because Genesis is the book of beginnings. This is where we find the the starting point for all of the great truths that we hold dear. And this morning is no exception. This morning is a great truth that applies to all of us. Yes, even to the babies in the room being held. From the littlest to the oldest. This text explains for us why the world is the way it is. Why babies scream in hunger. Why two-year-olds look at mom and yell, no. 
Why children deceive their parents. Why husband and wife fight. Why work is hard. Why life can be miserable at times. And when we wonder why is the world like it is, why can't life just be easy and smooth? Genesis 3. That's why. We're going to look this morning at the sad event that changed the entirety of the universe. It is an event that we are still living out the consequences of today. But praise be to God, we will not be living with these consequences forever. I'd like us to look at the fall and this interaction between the serpent and Eve and Adam, who's there but not there. I'd like us to look at it and see three things. First, we see the temptation. Then next, we see the rebellion that follows. And then third, we see the rejection that is its consequence. Temptation, rebellion, and rejection. Let's begin then by looking at this passage and at the temptation that presents itself. And the first thing that we need to understand is the context of this passage, and that is that this is an historical matter. This is not a story. It's not a fable like Aesop. It's not a legend. It's not a made-up story like Star Wars. It is not a myth like Odysseus or Hercules. This is an historical fact. We must begin there. This is as true and as factual as everything else we have been looking at in Genesis. Just as God actually created and the world around us is real and we can feel wood and we can stand and not float away, Genesis 3 is real. Now, I need to mention that today because there are many, many who will try and convince you that this is anything but real. Some of you have had this happen to you at school whether high school or college or beyond, some of you will experience this. They will attempt to tell you that this is just a story that someone made up. As if when you turn on the news, there aren't murders and hates and theft. As if in your neighborhood, people don't sin against you. As if you do not get angry with others without a cause. As if you do not see the consequences of this text everywhere around you, every single day. That is the myth, that the world somehow can be perfect. It was always assumed to be true. Moses, who wrote the laws of the Pentateuch, who described the exodus from Egypt, he wrote this text under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so throughout the Old Testament, it was assumed to be an actual fact that there was an actual Adam and an actual Eve and they lived in a real garden and there was a real tree with real fruit and a real sin. Our Lord Himself in the New Testament assumes that this is all fact. As we think at Christmas of the wonder of the baby Jesus 
and of how it's a time to be kind to others. We must remember that Luke chapter 3 ends that great genealogy of Jesus with talking about Adam, the son of God. This is a reality throughout the Bible. It's also a very important matter. As we've said, it explains the world. It explains how the world is and why it is. But it's important for another crucial fact. Genesis chapter 3 is absolutely essential to understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Genesis 3 is not real, if Genesis 3 is something made up, if it is not something that applies to everyone, then we don't understand grace and the gospel. Because the gospel presumes people who are lost in sin and who need a Savior. That comes from Genesis 3. It's a reminder to us even as we think about evangelism and telling others the story of the gospel. Do you notice how Moses sets out this story? He begins with God and creation. And then he moves to sin. And then he moves to grace. We'll see that next week at the end of chapter 3. This is the way that we should think about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there is a God and he did create all. And there was, there is and was sin. And there's grace to atone for it. This is a very important doctrine, and it is our first introduction to the tempter himself. That is, Satan. Chapter 3 opens up with a serpent who is more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, there is, if you'll forgive the phrase, more than meets the eye here. The serpent is unusual. Now, I have to disabuse you of a notion that we're becoming more and more at ease with, and that is talking animals. You know, when some of us were much younger, we remember Mr. Ed, and he was the talking horse. We remember Flipper communicating through chirps and through dolphin noises. And now it seems that we just take this for granted because, of course, there's Narnia and every animal talks in Narnia. But we have no other account here in Genesis, in this creation, of an animal speaking. Now, there are other animals who will speak at extraordinary times. Balaam's ass will speak. But it's extraordinary. None of the other beasts or animals that Eve would have seen would have spoken. This is something that is very different. And you also need to disabuse yourself now of the notion of the kind of snake that you may have even seen this weekend in your garden. This is not a beast slithering down around on the ground. That's part of the punishment we'll see next week. But this is a beast who stands at least upright on four legs, perhaps even on two. This is a beast that comes before Eve more different than any other. But we know from the Scripture that this is not merely an animal. Because you see, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, we are told of the enemy, Satan, who is that ancient serpent. 
And in Paul's ending of his letter to the Romans, chapter 16, verse 20, he tells us that he prays that the God of peace would trample under our feet Satan. The same thing that he will say later in chapter 3. There is more than meets the eye here, but there is also less than meets the eye. And that is, we see here from this text that there is no equality between good and evil. Evil is not something that has always existed. You see, some people think that there's always good and evil, and that they are equal, and that there's some sort of cosmic balance that we are supposed to keep in place. I often wonder why someone doesn't just walk up to them and say, if you really want to balance, do you want more evil in your life, if that helps out the balance? So that we have just the right amount of good and evil. People don't want that, do they? And you see, here the text shows us that evil is something that is introduced into the world, that as God created the world, it was good. The other thing that we need to remember, and there's a little reminder here in this passage, is that the devil is not as powerful as God. He would like you to think so. He would like you to think he's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He knows all things. But he doesn't. And we see it here in verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. You see, initially Moses starts us out by seeing that God is sovereign, that God is the creator of all beings. Evil does not have its own existence. It is not equal with good. But that should not dull us to the danger that is presented here because the serpent is indeed more crafty than any other beast. And this word here for crafty carries with it the connotation of being cunning. You see... This word can cut one of two ways. If it is used for good purposes, it can be clever, prudent, and it's used that way in the Proverbs. But in other places where it is used for ill ends, it is cunning, sneaky, manipulating. Perhaps you know someone who's like that. You could picture that in your mind. There's a real danger here. And this beast, the serpent, comes to Eve and she should have seen the danger because the world here has just gotten turned upside down. You see, Adam was made Lord over all of creation, vice-regent to God. He was the one who had named the beasts. He was the one who had God's dominion in the garden and beyond. And here we have one of the beasts coming to give advice to Eve. Now, think initially how ridiculous this would be. How many of you take mutual fund investment from five-year-olds? Or take advice about which job you should take from your dog? This doesn't happen, does it? It's foolish to even think about it. There's a hierarchy. There's an order. Here the world is being turned upside down. And this is how Satan attacks. He pits wife against husband, children against parents, worker against boss. He is trying to turn the world upside down to create chaos and pain. 
And he begins right here in Genesis 3. And it's ironic because at the end of this story, what is the result of sin? Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the result of sin is that man begins not just to listen to animals, but begins to worship animals, replacing God with beasts. This is the tempter. He is a liar from of old, and he continues to lie in your life even now. And he has also a strategy. The devil is evil and wicked, but he's not stupid. We need to remember that. He comes here to Eve, and he begins to tempt her, and he has a strategy. And that strategy is temptation first, not duress. He doesn't hold Eve's arm behind her back and threaten to break her elbow unless she takes the fruit. He doesn't threaten to throw her in a dark dungeon unless she will listen to him. He doesn't use brute force. He's far more sneaky, crafty, cunning than that. He comes up to her with a question from a subordinate, from one of the beasts. And he comes to make an excuse and to suggest something. And his strategy here is first and foremost a suggestion, not an attack. You can hear it even in the tone that we see here in verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now notice, he doesn't start here by saying, God's lied to you. Or, you're foolish for listening to the Lord. He starts with a question. And he does something else that is very subtle. I'd ask you, if you have opportunity this afternoon, to look at it for its power. He says, did God actually say? Now, if you go back through Genesis 2 and through Genesis 3, you will see that over and over and over again, the name that is used is the Lord God. We see it just a sentence earlier here. Twenty times in those two chapters, the Lord God is declared. And you see, the Lord gives us not only the context of sovereignty, but of covenant. This is a relationship that Adam and Eve have with God. But of course, the tempter does not have this relationship. He sees God as a being out there to be worked around, worked beside. And he begins to nick away at Eve's trust in the Lord. He says, did God actually say this? Are you, are you sure you didn't misunderstand him? Are, are you sure he would say something that would be so unreasonable here? This is the temptation that we face all the time from Satan. Do you see what he's done with God's command? God's command to Adam was, you can surely emphatically eat of anything in the garden, any tree, any fruit, anywhere but this one. And what does Satan turn it around to? Did God really say you can't eat anything at all in the garden? What a miserable God he must be. How miserable it must be to live in this garden. What a mean, nasty, unthinking, uncaring God. Does Satan attack you like that? 
That's how he comes at you. You know, do you re- did God really say that you, you can't have any other woman but your wife? Really? Did God really say you can't speak anything but the truth? Did God really say you can't just take anything except for what's yours? Really? You see, that's how God comes at us. Excuse me, that's how Satan comes at us. He comes at us to try and make God seem unreasonable, to twist God's words so that we become confused and we think, you know, he's right. I wonder. He's trying to plant a seed of doubt in Eve's mind. And it it doesn't hurt that he does so by means of flattery. Because you see, the tone here in his question is one of, well, let me help you out here. I don't think you properly understood God. Did he really say this? It's a way of putting things by way of inquisition. But the person who is the subject of the inquisition is not Eve. It's God. Do you see what Satan has done here? He has asked a question that puts Eve in charge of and in judgment over God's word. That's pretty flattering, isn't it? Well, let me think about this. Let me see if what God said was reasonable. Right? Some of you perhaps have seen these bumper stickers that are around on various cars. They're pithy sayings about the importance of the Bible. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Wrong. God said it. That settles it. I don't have judgment over God's word. It's true because God has said it. Now, it's to my great blessing that I believe it. But I don't stand over God's word. And this is the beginning of this attack. And it occurs in our days today. You go into any major university, into the religion department, even of universities that are associated with various branches of the visible church. And they treat the Bible like it was some sort of hopscotch put together. There's a whole group of men that made it their job to vote on which words were actually Jesus's. And then they color-coded them. Black if they're sure. Red if they're sure they're not. Orange if they're not really too sure. Standing over the Word of God. And this is really, if we think about it, not just an academic exercise. This is the root of all of our sin. Because God lays down His truth and His Word for us. And when we hesitate, when we doubt it, that is when we sin. That takes us to the next thing that we see here. Because you see, temptation leads to rebellion. Satan begins by questioning. Then... He moves to full-on lying. And the rebellion comes in Eve and in Adam, first and foremost, in believing the lie rather than the truth. Look at verse 4. Satan has asked Eve if she can eat of nothing in the garden. And Eve tries to make a brave defense here, but doesn't do a very good job. First, in verse 3, she says, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And so Eve does something that she should not do. She begins to redefine the word of God herself. 
she adds something to it, which is a danger because it's not true. This is a lie in and of itself. And this is important for us to think about. Because you see, part of believing the lie is setting up our judgment alongside God's. It's not just disobeying God's word. It's adding to it. This is the first attempt at legalism. Well, God said we're not supposed to eat it. And if eating it is bad, then I probably shouldn't even touch it. So let's make a rule. Be clear. Nobody touch the fruit. Then we're sure not to eat it. Then the next step is, let's not stand near the fruit. Well, how close do we stand? I don't know. Should it be 10 feet? No, I think 12 feet. How about we compromise? It'll be 11 feet. No, the shade, 11 and a half. Okay. And we start adding and adding and adding to the Word of God. And this is what we do. And then we wonder why, when our man-made rules are violated and there are no consequences, that people think they can violate the rules of God. You see, it's God's Word that settles things. It's His Word that is to be obeyed. And when we begin to add to it, nothing but trouble comes to it. Satan takes this advantage because Eve has said we can't even touch it or we'll die. Now, before we get to Satan, I want to say one other thing, that Eve has also added some other problem here, and that is that in addition to adding to the Word of God, she also gives the wrong motive for obeying the Word of God. She says we can't eat this because if we do, we'll die. Now, how many of you would be pleased if your children answered every question for from someone else, why do you clean your room? Because if we don't, we'll be grounded. Why do you eat what you're supposed to eat? Because if we don't, we won't get dessert. Over and over again. How much more pleasant? How much more joyful? Why do you clean your room? Because my parents asked me to. And I want to honor them. Why do you eat all your vegetables? Because my parents told me to. And they're wise. And this is good for me. Right? Now, this doesn't just happen with kids, does it? Why do you go to work? Because if I don't, I'll get fired. No. Because you glorify God in your calling. You see? Eve has the wrong motive here. She set things up wrong and Satan pounces. And what I want you to see here is Eve's mistakes have given Satan an opening just as we can do. He pounces right into it. He goes from, did he really say to, no, he's a liar. Look at verse 5. But the serpent said, or excuse me, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan pounces right in here because he knows there is a falsehood in what Eve has said and he drags Eve's falsehood into God's mouth. And he begins to say, you know, God really doesn't have it right. He starts to redefine the entirety of the world. God's love becomes envy. Service to the Lord becomes slavery. A suicidal plunge 
into sin becomes a leap into life. Satan has turned the world upside down by lying about the truth of the world. But he doesn't just lie about what God has said. He also lies about the character of God. Do you notice what the very first lie recorded in Scripture is about? It's about the judgment of God. You see that? The very first lie says you can act against God with no consequences. Oh, he's an old softy. No, no, no. You won't die. There's no judgment. There's no accounting. God's not really in charge. He's not really sovereign. Be your own lady. Come on. You've come a long way, baby. This is what you need to do. This lie is about the judgment of God. And then he he continues to lie about who God is. He begins to say that the way that you can be most like God is by disobeying God. Do you see that? Do you really want to be like God? Don't listen to him at all. Go ahead and do exactly what he told you not to do. Is there wisdom in this? But yet are we tempted to this all the time? We are tempted to think that we will be more mature if we cast aside the law of God. That's what our society says all the time. If you want to be more mature, more intelligent, more independent, you must cast off this idea of a God and creation and sin and all this other business. You see, this is the lie of Satan. Because, you see, we know what it is like to be like God. We know what it is that makes us more like God. It is obedience because we see it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the express image of God. If you want to see the Father, he tells Philip, look at me. And what was Jesus' whole life about? Obedience. Doing the Father's will. So you see, when you are tempted to disobey so that you might improve, think of Eve and the ruin that followed when Adam and Eve sinned. Because you see, especially you young people, you are going to be tempted all the time. Oh, don't listen to your parents. They don't know what they're talking about. You don't need to do what they tell you. Aren't you smarter than that? Come on. Are you going to be a baby your whole life? Only babies obey. No. Jesus obeys. They believe this lie. They believe a lie about who God is, and that leads then to them leaving the Lord. You see, the woman then sees that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was desired to make one wise, and she took of its fruit and ate and gave it to her husband. Now ask yourself a question. Why would Eve believe the serpent? She has known him about 45 seconds. He has not done anything for her. Not given her anything. Not protected her. Not provided for her. Not taught her, not done anything. 
The alternative is to believe God, who created Eve, who gave her a lush garden, who gave her everything in the world, a perfect world, who was in relationship with her, who walked with her and Adam in the cool of the garden, who loved them and showed them that he loved them. And she pushes this all aside in a moment. Because, you see, that's where rebellion and sin takes us. A wise friend of mine once said, Sin makes you stupid. And it does. It makes no practical sense here for Eve to believe the serpent. None at all. But she rushes headlong. This was an opportunity for Adam and Eve to show that they were covenant keepers, not covenant breakers. To show their loyalty to the Lord. This could have been a shining moment. And it's all cast aside in rebellion against God. And this is the pattern of sin. Listening to the creature rather than the Creator. Do you notice how Eve makes her decision? She has explicit instructions from God. And instead she follows her gut. Anytime anyone tells you, you always got to follow your gut, they're lying to you. Your gut is not the Bible. It is not always right. Sometimes it's a little too much salsa at night. That's what it is. And it throws you off. You see, Eve here should have obeyed God. It could have been a shining moment. But it was lost. And this is a moment that we face today. You see why she made this choice? She followed her impression. Her impression was that the tree was good for food. That it was a delight to the eyes. And that it was desired to make one wise. It's very similar to the way sin is described for us in the New Testament. In the book of 1 John, chapter 2, and verse 16 where John describes what sin is. And he says this. He says, All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, good for food. The desires of the eyes, a delight to the eyes. And the pride of life, desire to make one wise. You see, Eve's sin is no different than our sin. So we must cast off notions that if only we were there instead of Adam and Eve, we would have figured it all out. Because every single day we have living, breathing proof that we would not. We sin in the same manner. Now, a lot of this interchange here is with Eve, and this has caused no degree of consternation throughout the ages. People now say that, well, you know, women are at fault. And any time there's a fight in the battle of the sexes, people say, well, you know, ever since Eve made that mistake, we're all paying for it. Like somehow she's to blame. Who was in charge? Who did God create first? Who did God make the covenant with? Who did God give the command to? Adam. But, but you say, but the serpent is talking to Eve, and it was Eve who was tempted and who fell, and she gave it to Adam. 
Where's Adam during this discussion? Do you see it here in verse 6? She took the fruit. She ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam is the first couch potato. He is standing there letting her have this interchange with the serpent. Silent. Staying out of it. Not taking leadership. Not doing the God-ordained covenantal role that he had been given. Not to order people around, but to protect his wife. And to stand for the word of God. To interject in and say, no serpent, that's not what God said. He didn't say we couldn't eat of any of the trees. He said we could eat of anything. He gave me so much, it's beyond anything I could ever imagine. And he gave to me this woman, a helpmeet, perfectly Perfectly suited to me. I will trust Him. I will follow Him. You get out of my face and away from my wife or you're going to feel my wrath. But instead, He's looking at the ground, kicking some dust, some dirt. And then when Eve comes to Him, He says, well, okay, honey, if you say so. You see, Adam, instead of leading... Is being led. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 that Adam has the greater punishment because Eve was deceived, but Adam sinned willingly. Adam knew what was going on, and he sinned because he wanted to be like God. This is a rebellion. And it leads finally, briefly, to a rejection. To the sad story here in verse 7. Then the eyes of them both were opened. They were opened. Satan's half-truth there comes to fruit. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, this rebellion does not lead to being like God. It does not lead to being in charge. It does not lead to happiness. It leads to shame and misery. The immediate consequences are this great downward spiral. The Hebrew is very vivid. Verb after verb after verb. She took. She ate. She gave. He ate. They saw. All that was done in creation is ruined in a moment's notice. And one sin then begins to lead to another. Eve sins. Then Adam sins. Then they sin together by trying to improve on God's creation. They sew fig leaves together for loincloths. Now, some of you are familiar with fashion. You've seen fashion shows or people in dapper suits. Do you see what the first attempt at works righteousness is? It's a miserable bunch of leaves sewn together. A tuxedo does not pop out here. A wedding gown does not pop out here. The first attempt that man makes for works righteousness is a completely miserable failure. They try and improve on what God has done, but cannot. This shame then begins to grip them. The the concept of nakedness in the Hebrew is more than just about what your body looks like. 
It's that kind of standing there where you feel like the spotlight is on you and there's nowhere to hide and you desperately want to crawl into a crack in the floor. Have you ever felt like that? I have when I was very young and I was in a spelling bee and I was asked a word and I didn't know it and I'm standing up there in front with the microphone and everyone's there and I don't know it. And I'm just, Is there a way you could blink and not be there anymore? You see, that's what sin does to you. And this rejection now leads not only to shame, but it winds up leading to death. They've lost their relationship with God. They hide themselves. They cover themselves. They've lost the relationship that they had with each other. You remember when they were created husband and wife, they were naked and they were not ashamed, Moses tells us. And now they can't bear the sight of each other. They can't bear to be open before each other. And they have lost their relationship with the entirety of the world. Now their eyes are open, but it's not good. You know what it's like? Have you ever had a great illness or a bone that was broken or a muscle that was hurt or torn? You become very aware of your body, don't you? You you may take for granted what your back is like during the day, but when it's bothering you and you sit down, you are very aware of your back, aren't you? But that's very different than the doctor who knows these things. Or someone who's healthy who has no concern about them. There is an awareness, but it is not a good awareness. That is how they become aware of good and evil. Well, what happens here then? They're miserable. They are cast out or about to be. They have listened to the lie. They have rebelled against God. Where is the hope for Adam and Eve? The hope is found on the other side of Romans chapter 5. Romans 5 verse 12 tells us that it was one man's sin that brought death and misery to all mankind. But Romans chapter 5 also tells us that one man's obedience brought about grace and eternal life. You see, Jesus was not Adam. When Jesus was challenged about the truthfulness of God's Word, when Satan himself came to him and said, you know, isn't this what the Bible says? Jesus said, no, you don't know God's Word. And he told him, When Jesus was given the opportunity to think that he should rival God, instead he submitted. We see that in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus willingly submitted to the will of God. This is the hope not just for Adam, not just for the world. It is the hope for you. The only way that you can get out of the sin and misery and rebellion of Adam. Is through the obedience of Jesus. You can't get away from Adam. But you must have Jesus. Are you ready to do that today? To commit your life to Him. To follow after Him. To follow after Jesus' pattern. That holiness and happiness are one thing. This is the hope for the world but it's the hope for every believer in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You have indeed given us hope in Jesus. And we ask, O Lord, that You would remind us of the great blessing that You have given to us in Jesus Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.